Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm also honored to serve as the moderator for today's panel. Uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, it's become quite fashionable to engage in the occasional bank bashing. Uh, I will admit myself having done a little bit, but only when it's been justly deserved. Uh, the latest incarnation uh, of bank bashing has become a proposal or a series of proposals to tax financial transactions. Uh, what was originally proposed by economist James Tobin as an attempt to slow adjustments in currency markets has morphed into a rallying call. Like most slogans, the reality is a little more complex than the rhetoric. Uh, today's panel is intended to go beyond that rhetoric. Uh, like all, like many interventions in the market, the intended targets may not actually be the ones who bear the actual cost of the intervention. Who exactly bears the burden of a financial transaction tax, along with its potential impact on liquidity and price discovery, will be examined today. Moving beyond the financial impact, today's discussion will also examine the budgetary impact. Often financial transaction taxes are presented as an easy, relatively painless avenue for raising large amounts of government revenue. The ability to raise significant revenue, of course, depends importantly on how markets adjust to the tax, whether the promised level of revenues ever mature, ever realize, will be part of the discussion today. Like many questionable proposals, a financial transaction tax has gained considerable momentum in Europe. Just this past Valentine's Day, the European Commission adopted a proposal for enhanced cooperation on the adoption of an EU-wide financial transaction tax. This enhanced cooperation would take the form of a 0.1% tax uh, on the trade of equities and bonds and a 0.01 tax on derivatives. The European Commission projects that such a tax will raise as much as 35 billion euros annually. Uh, given EU government's record on forecasting on fiscal matters, I think we can obviously put a considerable amount of faith in this projection. Uh, not to be outdone by the EU, a handful of Washington politicians have also proposed implementing a financial transaction tax here in the United States. Uh, my hope, our hope, is that today's panel will help inform that debate uh, and make it a little more thorough than the debate that went on or did not go on in Europe. Our first panelist will be George Wang, who currently serves as a research professor in finance at George Mason University. Prior to joining George Mason, Professor Wang served as deputy chief economist and director of market research at the United States Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Professor Wang also served as a senior financial economist and econometrician at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. Uh, he received his PhD in economics and statistics from Iowa State. Perhaps most importantly, at least for today's purposes, Professor Wang is a co-author of a Cato paper on which today's event is uh, based. In addition to being able to find that paper online at www.cato.org, you can also find print copies in the hallway. Our second panelist is Aaron Klein, who serves as director of the Financial Regulatory Reform Initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Previously, Aaron served as, at the Treasury Department as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy under Treasury Secretary Geithner. I had the pleasure of first getting to know Aaron when we were both worked as staff on the Senate Banking Committee. While I worked on the Republican uh, side of that staff, Aaron led the economic analysis for the Democrat staff, first under Senator Paul Sarbanes and later under Senator Chris Dodd. Uh, in addition, he handled a number of other issues for the committee, including transportation and financial services reform. I want to again thank you for coming, uh, thank our audience, thank our panel, uh, and I will turn the podium over now to Professor Wang. Okay, thank you. So I just. Uh... 
Oh, first, uh, thank you very much. Uh, give me the opportunity to the, the, uh, present this paper's major uh, uh, results. So, uh, the introduction, because I just have uh, 20, 20 minutes, that's why I might go a little bit fast. But I, uh, mainly is I try to give you review on the pros and cons. And then I try to give you the literatures on the, on the serious side and also on the, on the empirical side. Because the theory always based on what? Uh, uh, on, on the assumptions. And uh, certainly uh, the assumption maybe not work. So here we said the, the, the pros, they say, reduce excess uh, speculation and the price uh, volatility. That's uh, Tobin and also Summer. And also they try to say, if we can, uh, re reduce speculative tra trading, then uh, cooperation will focus more on the long-term long long-term uh, objectives. The, the third is uh, reduce co uh, cost of uh, ca uh, capital because they, they, they think imposed tax will reduce market volatility. The fourth is said the tax can generate uh, tax re uh, revenues. Uh, the cons, the, of course, the, the, the people said this claim reduced ter uh, return volatility is really depends on the assumptions and also mechanism of the theory of the models. The, the second, they said, if you impose tax, you will increase, reduce market uh, li liquidity. And also, the third is a lose market share to the oh, oh, overseas and also increase the co cost of ha hedging in the futures market. The fourth, we said, increase the cost of ca capital and also bring down the security wa values. So this paper is by the uh, uh, Emmy Holt and the, the, the Mendelssohn because they claim that the, the assets pricing part of is uh, influenced by the li li liquidity. So uh, the, uh, the purpose of this paper is really review uh, theory, uh, literature, and also review uh, empirical work. And also, we third, we try to say how you estimate potential tax. So uh, because I don't have a lot of time, I just go quick, quick on the Serious side, I, uh, I think we have a lo uh, lot of interesting on the um, uh, uh, empirical work. The, 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 the first, we said the people support the tax, this is 
re reduce uh, excess uh, speculation and uh, price volatility. Of course, the, the, the first is the literature. The, the, the basic idea is this. They think there is a positive relationship between short-term speculation and the, the, the uh, excess price volatility. And the market participant has two. One is short-term uh, speculators, another is what? Long-term value trade uh, traders. Short-term speculators usually follow what? More momentum trading. That's why they can cause what? Increase price volatility. And also short-term traders trade very, very frequently. That's why they try to argue if you use uh, the excess, you, if you use the tax, you can reduce the short-term tra uh, traders trading uh, uh, activity. Hence, will reduce the uh, price, uh, uh, the, uh, the excess price volatility. And also, second, they say, re, re, reduce a cost of capital. Miller is trying to say, if you reduce the market volatility, hence you will be easier for firm to raise capital at what? Low, lower cost. And then the third, they try to say, uh, tax and increase the tax re uh, revenues. Of course, this really depends on the assumptions. Uh, usually, people like CBO office, they, uh, they have a 1990s do uh, document try, try to say, uh, impose tax, you can generate a, a huge amount of the tax re uh, revenues. Okay, the, 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 the basic weakness of this assumption is this. They did not take, a, they use trading volume before the impose of the tax. Okay, now we said uh, that argument uh, that the against a, a financial tax. Here we just said, uh, if you impose the tax, you may have what? Reduce the trading volume and the market liquidity and also uh, information efficiency. The, the, this reason is easily to understand because trading volume have a negative relationship with what? Trading cost. If a trading cost increase, then people will what? Re, uh, will be significantly re, re, reduce his trading volume. Usually, mar market liquidity is measured by what? That the measured by the bid ask spread. Bid ask spread has what? negative relationship with the trading volume. 
therefore, if trading volume is down, the bid ask spread will what? Increase. Because the bid ask spread is one of the major part of trade, trading cost. And the third, uh, we said, why this will be uh, slow down the uh, information? The reason is, if you have higher tax, people will what? Uh, less trade. If people less trade, then what? Information will uh, slowly in, in, uh, incorporate in the, uh, the asset price. Uh, and also, we said the, uh, the, the tax uh, does not ne necessarily reduce price uh, volatility. It's really based on the theory uh, model. It depends on the uh, composition of the tra uh, tra uh, traders. And uh, uh, the third, we say increase cost of uh, capital and uh, hedging, because you are imposed tax, you will uh, increase your tra trading cost. Hence, you will increase the bid ask spread. Hence, you will increase the tra trading cost in the futures market, because the economic function of a futures market is what? Hedging the risk. So the fourth, this is a, a exchange usually like you use this. If you uh, impose tax, you will, uh, U.S. will lose what uh, international com uh, competitiveness. Hence, a lot of uh, uh, the, the futures contract will move to what uh, oh, 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 overseas market, or they will trade and. Uh, and, uh, and tax assets. So now that's uh, the first, I just reviewed the theory models. Now is uh, uh, the, the empirical result. Here we can see empirical result as a, uh, here's the first, I just decide the, the, the li uh, li uh, literatures. But now I give you a three case. You can look at it. The, uh, if you interest the, the paper, I, uh, I have it here. I can uh, show you. The first is talk about uh, Swedish in the 1986. If they in increase equity tax from 1% to the 2%, 60% of the trading volume of the uh, 11 most uh, active Trade uh, Swedish share will shift to what? London stock of exchange. So this is the paper uh, by by him, uh, 1993 Journal of Financial Economics. This is a widely quote. Second one is my own research. It's talk about effects of uh, uh, trading tax on the fuel, uh, uh, futures market. 
the, the first one is Cho and the Li, and, uh, and the second one is Cho uh, and Mi. The reason is very interesting. Taiwan uh, index futures market in May two, 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 2000, they have uh, uh, reduced. Uh, rather than uh, increase, they are reduced five, five basis points to the 2.5 uh, basis point. So this is a, have a very interesting result. First, be, before the tax re, 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 reduction, Singapore also trade Taiwan index futures. Based on the early study, Singapore index, tai, uh, Taiwan index futures trading in the Singapore prices is leading in price in the Taiwan in the index futures. But after the tax re reduction, then after six months, the, the information lead is, is exactly what? Re reconversed. So the, the, the second part is uh, I have did with uh, the, the Cho, we have used uh, uh, three, three equation econometric models try to show the beta spread is a de uh, decreased. The nice part is uh, beta spread has a three part, trading cost, uh, uh, trading cost and the inventory cost and the uh, adverse information. So you are re reduce the tax actually is what? Re re reduce the uh, uh, trading cost. Trading volume is what? Uh, increase. Volatility doesn't in uh, increase. And also very interesting is uh, the tax revenue first after first year is true, reduced, but but not fifty percent. Only reduced thirty percent. But but then after second year, the tax revenue is what increase rather than decrease because of what trading volume uh, 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 increase. I give you a nine. It's a, a nice picture you can see. Before uh, here, uh, Singapore is, uh, uh, you see, the Singapore trading volume is higher than the uh, trading volume in Thai, Taiwan uh, uh, index futures. But after the uh, tax, you can see trading volume is a shift to what? Taiwan. So this is really give empirical uh, evidence. Say if you uh, the the, uh, the in, you impose tax, you can go to sure uh, the, the the overseas. Uh, sorry. Okay. And now the third one is uh, we are work on the U.S. because U.S. futures market. When I was in the Commodity Future Trading Commission, every year. We have to the, the review literatures. Say whether you, you we should uh, impose the tax uh, 
Finance Commodity Future Trading Commission. But here we try to use most recent data. We try to show if we that impose the tax. Uh, here we the analyze is use. Uh, 11 US futures contracts. So, sorry. And also, we, 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 we got a major result. Trading volume is a negative or related with the bid ask spread. That's sure. The bid ask spread is also negative with the trading volume. The most important is we show the price volatility has what? Positive relationship with the, the, the bid aspect. Why? Because in, intraday volatility composed, price volatility composed what? Two, two parts. One part is due, due to what? Information. Another part is due to what? Liquidity. The, the, the bid aspect. So the, 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 the next way we try to say the tax. Here, mainly, we, because I don't have much time, that's why I go a little bit quick. Here, we just can compare. Usually, people just use trading volume before the impose the tax. Now, because we have a structure model, we can estimate uh, elasticity of a trading volume with the trading cost. Hence, we can estimate what? The post-tax trading volume. So if we do this way, now we we, we under the, the assumptions 0.02% tax rate of a, of a no, notional value of the contract. This 0.02% is based on 28 House representative proposed this. So then we can see what? If we impose this, tax revenue will what? De uh, decrease. Your trading volume of six uh, contract will become what? Zero. So therefore, we'll move to what? Oh, oh, the, the overseas. Here we try to say what you you do the uh, tax re revenue by the pre-tax volume multiple by the tax rate, or you use very low elasticity. You can what seriously overestimate the tax. Now I got the. Uh, uh, the conclusion. So here we said increase the uh, uh, trading cost uh, to a sizable tax. Means if you increase a lot of tax, of course, if you increase, impose a small size of tax, probably doesn't matter. But if you impose a large part, like a 0.02% of the no uh, notional value of, of the contract, you can have what? Uh, significant uh, negative impact on the market uh, uh, quality. Market quality is referred what? 
Trading volume will re reduce. Beta spread will what? Uh, increase. Volatility may be not re de decrease, maybe what? In uh, 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 increase. Also, the fourth one is very interesting. The impact of trading tax on the trading cost volume is what? Different with the type of futures contract. For the example, SP500, you can easily move to what? Overseas. But then for, for the agricultural uh, commodities, you, you, you don't have the uh, uh, contract trade overseas. That's why for the, the, the agricultural or futures trade, uh, uh, trader, they, they will have what? Uh, more burden on the uh, tax. Yeah, this, uh, uh, I, the, the, this might be the, the major re, uh, result. And uh, I also have the actual estimate uh, volume of, of the uh, of the tax. Uh, if you are the, the, you see here, I have actually, uh, you see here the, the last three table. I have actually uh, the, the show how we estimate, but this part is in the. Cato's uh, paper and the part is in my other paper, which is sponsored by the, uh, the, the uh, Future Industry Association. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, George. Aaron? Uh, we'll switch over to PowerPoints. So Great. Thank you, thank you guys uh, for being here. First, Mark, I want to thank you and Cato for, for uh, inviting me and uh, letting me share the stage uh, with you and, and with George. George, thank you. Uh, uh, I think your presentation was really the meat and potatoes, the, the substance. If anything, I'm going to try and be a little bit of dessert uh, <laughs> and that way maybe go short and sweet so that we can get into a, a conversation um, uh, on the substance. Uh, I think George's points on the international element are really uh, extremely important to consider at this moment. Uh, clearly, our, our friends and allies in Europe have become very uh, uh, intrigued by this idea. It's gained a lot of political support. Uh, many of the European countries are moving forward, whether it's a Euro versus UK situation, but whether it's a South versus Northern Europe, I think is still being played out politically. As George points out, the Scandinavian countries have a little experimentation history on this. Uh, <clears throat> more so than that, uh, I think what George's paper really provides us is a foundation of a, a robust review of the literature. And so what I'm going to start with is a little bit of given forth on, on George's paper and then turn to the American experience. Because I think what's often lost in this debate is we assume America has no financial transaction tax. So that, that is false. We do, and I want to discuss it because we've engaged in a little bit of a quiet experiment on that tax over the last uh, decade plus that I don't think has been properly studied. So if anything, if there's a point kind of calling for studying of our actual experience uh, to add to the literature because it doesn't seem as if there's been much, uh, maybe discuss a little bit why. Starting off on the international point, uh, you know, Sweden is often uh, kind of the first one discussed uh, um, uh, 
I don't find the Swedish example very compelling in terms of understanding the modern system. I'd make three reasons why. One is it was 1984, so technology, the mobility of money, the uh, flows of international capital. I mean, trading equities in 1984 is pretty different than trading equities today. Uh, two is kind of the size of Sweden as a global player uh, compared to the US or UK or any of the other major areas. I do think in terms of the imposition of, of tax, of these types of fees and taxes and the global flight of capital, kind of where the country is in the uh, endowment effects of their already size of their market matters. And the third is, you know, as George points out, they went from 100 basis points to 200 basis points. So they started really high and they went to kind of unprecedented heights. And again, I think that's very different than the kind of current conversation that's, you know, going in the, you know, 20 or 30 basis point world. I think size of the, of the uh, tax matters. So that being said, I think the Taiwan story is very interesting for all the reasons that the, the Swedish one isn't. It's, we're talking about low numbers, five to two and a half. It's a more modern experience in the global flow. I think it has a, a nice comparison with, with Singapore. Uh, the last point that I made is, you know, people often don't talk, you know, talk about migration of financial flows, and they tend to talk about the U.S., the U.K., and Singapore is usually kind of the three examples of where funds would go uh, to to escape or avoid some of these fees uh, and taxes. Well, you know, the U.K. has a fifty basis point tax on equities. Uh, it is a much more narrow base. They exempt about seventy percent of trades. People think it tends to disproportionately fall on retail investors as opposed to market makers. Uh, uh, but it does raise real revenue over there. It also, um, you know, L London is, is still a vibrant financial center. So I think that bears a little more understanding of exactly how the UK mechanism works. I'd add the UK also has a similar stamp tax of 50 basis points on housing transactions. In the US, that fee also frequently exists at the state and local level, but like everything at the state and local level is totally not uniform. And you know there are a million examples of different ways, carve-outs for first-time home buyers, certain amounts, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, it is interesting to note that the UK had a housing bubble very similar to ours. And their budget, you know, you know, as George points out, volume, volume, volume. Volume drives the revenue estimates of this. So during a housing bubble, you have lots of turnover of home sales and you know, 50 basis points on the value of a home really adds up. So you actually saw major revenue effects both during the rise up and the crash down. I know it's a very different commodity than, uh, than futures, than equities, although the line is blurring a little bit. I think, um, the, you know, the, the housing crisis and the financial crisis shows that. So with that little response and international flavor, I think I'll, I'll turn to kind of, you know, my my first slide, which is supposed to wake everybody up and say, we have a transaction tax. <laughs> it's called a Section 31 fee. It's collected by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, I'm going to focus my talk on the, the, the fee that is collected when an equity is sold. There are additional fees that are collected when the equity is created. And this flo flows to a point that in George's paper about capital flow and formation uh, that, that is worth thinking about. There's also a fee when a stock ends. So usually it can often be due to a merger or a delisting, usually taking private, but there is a fee put on the end. The three fees combined roughly are targeted to meet the SEC's operating budget, but unlike other regulators who assess a fee and then directly use it to fund their operation, 
in, in the SEC case, the fee goes to the Treasury General Fund, like every other fee we pay, and Congress appropriates the SEC's budget. Uh, prior to 2001, the fee was fixed at 1 300th of 1%. Uh, you know, another way to think about that is 1% is 100 basis points, so 1 300th is 0.003 basis points. Uh, I like to think about it in terms of real dollars. If you sold a million dollars of stock, you paid $33 to the SEC. For those of us that don't buy and sell in stocks in the millions, um, uh, uh, as Mark said, we worked in, I worked in the federal government for 12 years. Um, if you sell $10,000 worth of stock, which is a lot of money and far more money than the vast majority of Americans have directly or, in, or indirectly in the equity market, but certainly directly, it's 33 cents. So it's really, really, really small, but it's not zero. Um, under the... Um, uh, under the Capital Markets Fee Relief Act of 2001, the SEC was given authority to adjust the fee. This is kind of, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's unique in the sense that an agency has the ability to adjust a fee to align to its budget, although it doesn't keep the money. So it's kind of always ch chasing, realigning this fee with what its budget is supposed to be for the year in terms of what the president's proposed, uh, Congress has, has enacted. Um, and as George said, the amount of the, the thing you always have to keep in your mind is the amount of money generated is a function of volume. Volume, volume, volume. The fee matters, but volume swamps the fee. Um, so currently, since 2001, the current fee, just so you all know, is 0 0.00224. So it's about a third less. You've gone from 0.33 to 0.22, with a lot of zeros before it, which is $22. Uh, per per million or 22 cents per 10,000. So this is a graphical representation of the variance of the fee over time. The red line shows what it would have been like absent the legislative fix in 2001 uh, and, and what it was before that. The key point that I draw, draw out is notice the peak of 0.0045% uh, and the trough of 0.006, or, you know, just about 0.005. And so what that means is the fee is ferried by almost a factor of nine. That's a tremendous variance in the fee over time uh, you know, th that I think makes this a unique and interesting case study or question for the literature to look. Has this variance had an effect on, on volume and on equity prices? So I'm going to show you a couple charts, and then I'm going to explain to you why the charts aren't really that illustrative, but I'm going to show them to you nonetheless. So the first one here shows the fee and the market. And what you see is the markets had two big crashes. Um, the 03 crash, which was often referred to as the crisis in accounting confidence, Enron, WorldCom. Uh, I like to think that the crisis in confidence was solved by the, by the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation. Debate uh, for another day. Right, debate for, debate for another day. Uh, and then there was this other crisis in 2008. Um, and early 09, which I think most of us are pretty fresh in our memory. I would point out, which most people don't really appreciate, the fall, in the, the market fell to very similar levels. Uh, you know, I think people thought during the last crisis, you know, well, the Dow, the Dow you know, you know, went, went below 8,000. That hasn't happened forever. It happened five years earlier. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've seen a, a rebound. The market's at an all-time nominal high today. Uh, the fee has also varied. Um, as you can see, it went up quite a bit when the market went down and vice versa. 
again, you know, it is important to note that the fee is a function of volume, but you know, the dollar amounts do matter, and the va the value of the market has you know fluctuated, you know, from seven thousand to fourteen thousand. There's been a lot of function in equ equity prices as well. Very volatile. So now we're going to look at volume, right? Volume in the green chart. I'm still showing you the fee. Uh, Volume went up at a, basically a logarithmic rate from 2000 to 2009, reaching, you know, growing by a factor of almost seven. Uh, and then in the crisis, it plummeted back to, to kind of the pre-crisis level. So you can, you can view this as kind of a, a couple different ways. One is there was, you know, a logarithmic growth that was, that was fundamentally changed by the crisis. The other is there's some line of best fit that was totally artificially skewed by the bubble and then brought way back to earth, back to this line of best fit. I don't pretend to know the answer. Um, I would caution against reading a correlation between the fee and volume. In some way, the sharp run-up in volume triggers the huge decrease in the fee because the SEC is constantly resetting this fee every six months. Uh, it makes it a little more difficult to empirically tease out the cause and effect because the SEC is actively altering the fee in response to real-time volume. Uh, this is maybe one reason why it hasn't been studied, because it's tricky. Uh, but, you know, people study really hard, th tricky things all the time, and, and I think you ought to be able to control for this. Smarter people than I, like George and, and Mark, can think through the lag effects and, and timing there. But volumes really moved a lot. Because volume was logarithmic, I also plotted it based on log volume, um, which, which I thought was interesting. You could also question whether or not the Dow volume is the appropriate uh, proxy, you know, because there are other growth of other markets, you know, maybe a total big board combined effect uh, would be the, be the right metric. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to make a couple more points um, right before I close. The, the, the first is I think what's going on in Europe will provide further interest in looking at this, especially the French experience with the French moving moving early in terms of adopting this, what's their effect on volume going to be? What's the effect on French stocks traded in other areas to get a little more of a, of a control? And the second question to ask more broadly is, so, you know, people, people say, you know, there are all these different, they're possible, they're negative externalities from the imposition of the fee, they're positive externalities of the fee, there's, you know, positive, you, you can debate, they're clearly, they're unambiguous positive values to liquidity. Some people argue that they're negative effects of too much liquidity or speculation. Some people argue both sides of that. Um, what, what you've seen in the debate is, well, does a fee matter at all if you're above zero? Or maybe a tiny, tiny fee doesn't really matter, but it starts to matter at some point and has some sort of, you know, and when you get to the 200 basis point, you know, you get to zero. So that makes me think there's a nonlinear effect of the fee. If there's a nonlinear effect, where, what, what is the shape of the curve? Where does it start to kick in? And fundamentally, you know, where are we in our current experience in relation to that with the SEC essentially aiming to generate a fixed amount of revenue, roughly its budget, which hasn't moved that much, moved a little bit, but not at all like volume or equity prices. Uh, and, and what does that portend for both the CBO scoring, the debate about a larger fee, and where, where, the, where it starts to change the effect on the curve? Thank you. Thank you, Aaron.
Well, I want to thank both of our, both of our panelists, and I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative since uh, Aaron brought up the point. And it seems to be there's a consensus that small fees don't matter much, larger fees matter more. And so I want to maybe put the question to George, and I understand it's an empirical question, but do you have a sense of where you think, what, what range of a fee do you get to where it really starts to matter in terms of liquidity, price discovery? As, you know, as, as was mentioned, the, the, the Section 31 fees are quite small and seem to not have a lot of impact you know, on the marketplace. So what level would you get to before you really see price impacts? I, I think that's a, uh, an uh, empirical question. So uh, at, the, at present time, I, I don't have... You want to venture a guess. Yeah, yeah, particular guess. So I think the, the best way is... Uh, we do the empirical uh, study and uh, for, for the example, okay, in my the other paper, in my other paper, I have show if the tax is rather than 0.022% is 0.022%. And then you can see the negative impacts is much smaller. Therefore, I think that what we do is we have a model, try to uh, have a trading volume, the liquidity, and the price uh, volatility. Then, based on that empirical result, then we can do the uh, lot of experiment on the, on the various magnitude of the tax rate. And, uh, and then we can see the which uh, uh, tax rate can that, that, that generate reasonable uh, income and also uh, have a less uh, negative impact. So I would interpret that as like a good academic year calling for further research. <laughs> Aaron, I don't know if you want to take a stab at no, I just I raise the point that, you know, the SEC is trying to, the SEC's goal in adjusting the fee is to, is to hit a fixed revenue number. The revenue has changed a little bit over time, but essentially you can think of it that way. So it's moved by a factor of nine to hit the same, you know, raise roughly one and a half billion. Um, maybe, maybe it's more like one million in the 31 fee because you have the other fees that I mentioned. So a factor of not, if it was hitting that or thought it would hit that revenue factor when volume was sky high at 6.006 basis points and you know, at other points in history when volume was much lower, it had to be at, you know, 22.022.0045. You know, that would pretend that if volume were at a higher level and the fee were at a higher number, you, you could generate a lot more unless there is a negative volume impact. And, you know, the volume you get, the, the fee can be thought of in this way under our current system is a little bit pro-cyclical. When volume rises, the fee falls. If the fee has an impact on volume at all, Volume keeps rising. And the flip side, as volume falls because of, a, you know, an external shock or crisis, the fee raises uh, and adjusts. And if it has an effect at all, it works in that direction. Unclear if it does have an effect, but it is an interesting way to think about our current structure. I think it would be helpful. I mentioned that the estimates in the EU are hoping to raise $35 billion. Um, I don't know off the top of my head the budget of the SEC, but that's kind of the amount. And I'm guessing we're talking somewhere in the range of 40, 50 million. Is that no? So I, the SEC budget. Um, 
It's a good question. I don't, I don't have that number off the top of my head. I would point, I have this thing from the SEC. The SEC, because we're in a CR, they actually can't do the adjustment. <laughs> okay. For, for, for the SEC, for the full budget. There we go. So, so somewhat uh, yeah. in, in comparison. Uh, let me open up to the audience. I don't know if, uh, Dean, you had a question. Dean Baker. Uh, in wait for the microphone, and I, while, while Dean is waiting for the microphone, I will ask that uh, you actually have questions rather than statements, or at least have your statements in the form of a question. Statement. No. No. <laughs> if you Baker can do it in the form of a question. Economic and Policy Research. Uh, first off, I enjoyed the paper. I realized how old I am because I remembered all this literature when it was new. A uh, <laughs> couple points. Uh, for, first off, by the way, I think there's an error. I'll, I'll go through it, but I, I think you overestimated the response. I, you used uh, point elasticities rather than arc, and I think if you used an arc elasticity, you wouldn't see these markets disappear. But the point I was going to make is, it, when we go back through time, we're seeing a period, we have to remember, we've had sharp falls in transactions cost. And there's no reason I think markets respond to taxes that, any differently than any other transactions cost. So basically, the tax rates that were being talked about, you know, certainly here in the United States or in the, the European Union, are basically just raising transactions costs, depending which market we're looking at, back to where they were, say, early part of the last decade, maybe the mid-90s. So we do have a history here. So it's not as though we have reason to believe this is somehow going to cause the markets to freeze up. We're simply raising costs back to where they were. And the estimates of high elasticity, I mean, I, I, I have no idea whether you saw that as a criticism of the tax or uh, supporting it, but to my view, that's actually a very positive story, someone who thinks the tax is a good idea, because the implication of having a high elasticity is that the, you're going to see it, in effect, all borne by the industry. That means that the falloff in volume is more than proportionate to the tax, to the increase in trading costs, which means basically the industry eats it. And the distinction here between financial transactions and say taxing clothes or food or other things, it doesn't provide direct utility. This is an intermediate good. So unless we have reason to think that this is gonna hurt financial markets, hurt the, the formation of capital, this is a net positive. We're eliminating waste in the system. The financial sector will eat it. Why shouldn't we like that? John Jalla, do you respond to that? No, I, I sort of agree with you. I think if I follow you, the reason we use elasticity is really try to see how the uh, each contract responds to the tax. But uh, here we said, if you have higher elasticity, means what? You impose the tax, the trading volume will what? Reduce more. If you have less elasticity, means what? If you impose the tax, your trading volume will what? Reduce less. Hence, your the, the revenue will what? Increase. So you see, that's, you see, that's the mechanism. Yeah, of course, I agree with you. I say honestly, if you are from uh, Chicago, then the people will be uh, criticized. Say you, 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 the basic flaw, let, let me say the basic flaw of econometric model, as, especially for the exanti analysis, is that we assume human behavior is same after the tax. Then Chicago school say, no, no, maybe after impose the tax, human behavior will change. Hence, this model may be not applied. You see, of course, this is a, Really, uh, I think, yeah, but I think this 
the best we can do. That's why the people do the uh, simulations. Yeah, so. I, I think that's a critical point. Any any number is an educated guess. Yeah. Some better, some more educated, some more educated than others, certainly. But uh, um, right here. Hey, Mark, it's Chris, Chris Smith. Good to see you again. Uh, the people at, uh, at Vanguard have put out a number that um, – I guess transaction costs have, have dropped about 50% over the last 10, 15 years. And they say that as a result of that, um, the value of an account of an average retiree ha uh, is about 30% higher than it otherwise would be over the life of that account. So if you were to impose a tax that raised those transaction, tax, uh, transaction costs again, wouldn't it just have the opposite effect? Yeah, so the, the question is somewhat to, to what extent would the tax be capitalized, if you will, into the traded asset? Yeah, I think that would be, you see, in my, the, the way of thinking is that if you increase uh, tax, well, uh, effect or, or volume, and then will be the, the affected uh, uh, assets pricing, you see, and then will be affected your the, the re, uh, retirees' uh, which of course could mean that you might raise more on the transaction cost, but you might not raise as much on capital gains, depending on how the asset itself is taxed. So there certainly could be system-wide effects. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so I, I, yeah, I, I think Chris raises an important point, and I would, I would echo it in two, different, in two different ways, right? First is, you know, thinking about people, uh, and I think Gene's point is exactly right. I mean, you can think of homo sapiens or homo economicus, and you can debate how people respond to incentives differently than how the economic model assumes people predict. And that's, you know, a, a, a difficult debate and well-versed. Um, but with regard to the, the, the fees, there is no question that the, that the power of compound interest which is the fundamental value behind savings for retirement, shows that small changes in that compound rate of return make huge effects over time. And to the extent that those you know, fees or, or costs change, that makes a huge difference. Uh, understanding that, you would think that people would vehemently search for the lowest fee process uh, and, and, you know, you know, index funds, no load funds, you know, things, things in which, you know, you get to this really interesting question. If market theory shows that no one person can beat the market, why are people investing in the market individually and not collectively? The distinction between homo sapien, you know, I think I can do it, and homo economicus, nobody can, so you should invest in the lowest fee and chase the lowest fee. I mean, I, have the, I think the TSP as a government employee actually offers... Uh, you know, the lowest fees. They have the smallest amount of choices. They have very limited number of choices. Uh, in part, that's how they get very low fees, and there's a trade-off between expanding choice and lowering fee. And as you point out, you know, the key question is, uh, per Dean's point, fees in general have come down a lot. This is kind of why I don't think the Sweden example is so, is so good. I mean, you know, I can debate whether I'm going to use E-Trade or Ameritrade or this, that, or the other, you know, when I'm trading stocks. Very few people trade stocks relative to the amount of people who are in Vanguard, who are in pension funds, who are in much more agglomerated type of asset allocation for retirement savings. 
especially in terms of uh, in terms of quantity of people, it's it's pretty striking. Uh, and the question then is, what's the impact of the fee? As per Dean's point, is is does it come out of Vanguard or does it get transmuted down to the individual? And how much of that amount is being capitalized between funds that aggressively turn over because the fee is based on turnover, not on hold of asset, versus folks that are more buy and hold. And this gets to the what Gene pointed out is one of the 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 the, the points in the literature is the two type of investor, right? The turnover investor and the buy and hold investor. The buy and hold investor, the fee doesn't doesn't make nearly as much of a difference as to the active trader. Um, Victor. Hello, um, I'm Victor Nava. I work at the Reason Foundation. I just wanted to ask either of you whether you can extrapolate your research on this financial transaction tax into um, taxing too big to fail banks, whether that would reduce systemic risk at all, because based on this, it seems like it wouldn't, but I just wanna know your thoughts on that. If there's any way you can extrapolate the research into this on that concept, thanks. Well, while you two are thinking, I'll take, I'll take a little bit of stab, and it, it, somewhat the question seems to me, you know, are you taxing something on the marginal basis? Are you taxing on a fixed basis? So you would say, let's just say Bank X is perceived as too big to fail, imposes an externality upon the economy, and you want to tax it to internalize that externality. Well, you're, are you going to tax it based on growth and size of assets, or are you just going to tax it as a flat fee? This is how big we think you are. Uh, depending on how you do that, I think you might have different impacts on behavior. And what's the incentive for the bank to try to make up that money somewhere else? So again, how you structure the tax, I think, would be very important. Um, I do think there's a difference in terms of there are certainly a wide range of debates about what the size of the benefit is. And I myself believe there is some sort of too big to fail benefit. But I'm not one to pick a point estimate because I don't have that sort of certainty in the uh, numbers that are out there. So trying to internalize that's far different. Whereas, you know, Aaron touched upon this a little bit, there is some sense that perhaps there are negative or positive externalities associated with the trading of any financial instrument. Um, I have not seen a very good, any really good analysis of what the size of those externalities are, uh, either positive or negative. So with, with this sort of gin the conversation up a little bit, either one of you want to take a stab at the question? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I would agree with Mark that I, I don't think that the 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 positive and extra, negative externalities of, of too big to fail. I don't think that, you know, you know, in terms of you have to really stop and think deep, deeply about what the benefits are of large institutions, what the costs are of systemic risk, how systemic and size are, are interrelated. I also, you know, too big to fail is two concepts, size and ability to, to resolve. The, it's been linked in one concept to the point where it's now four letters. But th there are two fundamental concepts in there, and they're not necessarily identical. Uh, I don't think the financial transaction tax uh, research is extrapable uh, because I think it's covering an activity and kind of a very different thing. Uh, you know, in theory, you know, you know, would you have a different tax rate if if it's processed through an institution based on the size of the institution? I mean. Y y you know, like it, it just, I don't see the natural link between the two things, but people smarter than I may have a breakthrough in discovery and then I would love to read the paper. George, you have a- No, I don't have much. Uh, thanks. Well, let me, let me ask, the, 
I mean, obviously, the too big to fail issue is somewhat related to financial crisis. And Aaron brought up, um, touched upon the topic of the housing market. And uh, while it was several years ago that I bought a house, the size of the tax I paid through the District of Columbia was large enough that it still sticks in my mind. <laughs> Um, and so I can say certainly wasn't quite small and, and obviously did not deter me from, from, from a house purchase. So setting aside the question of revenue, which is one of the more important aspects of it, financial transaction taxes are often uh, proposed as a way to avoid financial crises. I mean, whether you want to, say, reduce volatility, whether you want to, say, stop bubbles. And yet, as you mentioned, both the U.K. and the U.S. had very large housing bubbles um, Despite the fact, and of course, there is somebody could collect transaction cost data across states, and it would be certainly interesting. Obviously, a whole lot of other variables involved. Um, but my question is going is along the lines of, despite the fact that we generally have fairly large transaction fees in housing, that didn't seem to have stopped a housing bubble. Would we have had a bigger bubble or smaller bubble if the fees had been different? Do you think? So it's a fascinating question. I, I would. Uh... I think your point about looking at, you know, we had a national housing bubble. There were parts of the country that didn't, that did really well. There were parts that experienced a far greater run up and run down. There were a lot of effects going on, not the least of which was, you know, there weren't uniform products being offered nationally. Some states, uh, you know, had, had differing laws as to products that were available and not, and, and that may have made a, a significant uh, value the the other one is kind of you know the where the different networks were. I think it would be very interesting to see what the research on the ta transaction taxes and costs were. There, are, I think Dean's insight is valuable here. There are a lot of fixed costs with buying and selling a a home, uh, uh, e including even for speculation. I mean, there are two types of markets, just like we talk about in trading, and there are speculators in housing, and there are owners in housing. Often they're not treated the same in the taxes. I don't know if it was your first home or not, but yes. when I got my first home in Montgomery County, you get you get a one-time waiver for a first-time home buyer. Again, there's supposed to be some under the theory of a positive externality to encourage the first home ownership, and then beyond that, you're you're on your own. Um, it's a good question, I think. Uh, I, but I I would kind of pose back to George, if they're really large. I mean, we often debate the size of the tax makes a difference on behavior. So, you know, there are pretty high transaction costs to housing, yet people manage to get into a speculative bubble in that. What's different about that than the equity side? That would be, George, is there anything we can learn from what we see in the housing market for, I mean, are, are you think the pushing parallels is a little too far? I don't, I don't think the equity market and the housing market is exactly transferable. Yeah, yeah, I have to, I have to think about it before I give you the right, right answer. I, I will note to, to Aaron's point, it's interesting that, um, and, I, and I would argue that there are probably more uh, public choice style arguments for why homeowners, owner-occupied, pay a lower tax rate in general than mm -hmm. somebody who just owns a home outright. But it is interesting that the tax is almost always higher, if not equal, for speculative buyers of homes than it is for those who intend to live here. Uh, I will say anecdotally, it strikes me that those states that sort of were the, the core of the bubble were actually those who tend to have higher transaction costs. For instance, despite Florida being perceived as a low-tax state, it's a low-tax income state. They mm -hmm. make it up elsewhere. And obviously, California is probably not low-tax on anything. Um, but, uh, 
But that said, let me see if there are other questions. Um, right over here. <coughs> Uh, Derek Davis, and I'm a research student uh, trying to pick a topic for my dissertation. Um, so I saw multiple problems in the talk, and I'm thinking about behavioral finance. So is this a behavioral part of the problem, behavioral finance issue? And if so, was it the the in, investors' confidence after the whether the tax increases or the fee increases or decreases? over the time? Well, while these gentlemen are thinking of an answer, I would say, I certainly think that there's a lot there that could be worked on you know, for a dissertation topic. One of the things that struck me uh, with Aaron's presentation was he mentioned the Section 31 fees are reset um, every six months. Usually in April and October, except when there's a continuing resolution. So some of the question could be, you know, if if you hit October and you know you're going to get the budget, or you hit April and you know you're going to get the budget, if there's some expectation in the market that fees are going to go down or go up, depending on what the market's done, that might have behavioral responses. But certainly, the way people look at fees, I think, is an interesting question. You know, George has looked at the link between any of the behavioral literature and the transaction fee literature. No, I'm not a, a, a very good in the behavior finance. That's why I, I, I couldn't give you a, a, a very good answer. OK, let me say, uh, think about it. Okay. Okay. In, the, in the US experience, I'm not sure that it would be an applicable perspective because, I mean, again, you're talking about 22 cents in a $10,000 deal. So I, I, I mean, a rational thinker may not, the time it takes to think through the ramification of paying a 22 cent fee or after October 1 a 12 cent fee is probably not worth the difference in waiting a day because of the actual core variance of the, of the equity. That being said, people who are trading within a day, then it may make a difference. Those people and trading large volumes, you know, again, on a million, you know, you know, if you're talking about $25 on a million, you know, you know, and maybe you're not trying to make that much off the trade. Uh, but I don't think those people are at all comparable in the field of behavioral economics. I think that's kind of much more sophisticated traders to whom this would make a bit of a difference, if at all. And it, it, this gets back to, you know, maybe this fee is so small, nobody, it's not worth the time it takes to put, put it into your model. Which again, it sort of is a behavioral question. I would imagine perhaps the way the fee is disclosed, and you know, I don't know if there's data collected across countries, or, or but that might be one way of looking at it in terms of a dissertation topic. Uh, well, I want to thank everybody for coming today. Thank you for taking part in the participa participating in our conversation. Uh, I also want to.